Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey everybody, welcome back to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. I'm Cardiff Garcia. And I'm Shannon Bond. Shannon, unfortunately, Alpha Chat has not yet ascended to the kind of heights where we can afford anything other than public transportation. That's true. We don't have a private jet yet. I think we'll get yet. there, though. <laughs> but we are joined by David Crow, uh, FT reporter, who just did an amazing study of all the different ways that the S&P 500 companies use private jets. David, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Okay, so why don't you just start by telling us, what were the highlights of this study? So this was specifically a uh, an analysis of personal use of corporate aircraft. So corporate aircraft are a fact of life in, in U.S. business. You know, it's executives use them to get from for business meetings and so on. But this was specifically about when they take the, the company aircraft and take it on holiday, take it on a golf trip, take it to a friend's wedding. And then they ask the company to pay that fare. So if uh, Alpha, Alpha Chat ever did have a jet, you could use it to get to your, you know, um, shows around the country. Right. But the problem would be when you and Shannon or, or maybe you and Shannon separately took that jet on holiday. Go to Tahiti uh, or something right. like that. And ask for the FT to pay for the incremental cost. But they do have to disclose it. when They, they do have this, to disclose right? this as a form of remuneration because in 2006, the SEC decided that really executive compensation was much higher than companies were making out because they were boosting it with perks that they weren't disclosing. Uh, free accommodation, free trips on the company jet, uh, free membership to golf clubs and, and so on. And so they started making companies uh, disclose this perk. What I did with a colleague of mine is went through all of the filings in the S&P 500 for two years to try and get a picture of uh, how um, companies are using this perk and, and who are the worst offenders. And who were, in fact, the biggest offenders, as it were? So uh, Barry Diller comes out on top because he uh, was um, drawing from two sources, if you like. So he is the chairman of two companies, IAC, Interactive Core, and Expedia, um, which co-own a jet, which is quite convenient. Yes. And um, he was uh, billing both companies for his personal flights. And uh, we sort of that, that propels him to the top. He spent about $1.7 million uh, in uh, 2014. It's about $4,500 a day. It makes me smile because if you think of somebody going to book their annual holiday on Expedia, <laughs> they probably spend $4,500 for the year. For the whole trip, um, yeah. <laughs> and uh, he's spending $4,500 a day. Wow. And I mean, again, you know, this isn't, this wasn't a piece about whether, you know, private jets are right or not. It was a piece about whether it's right that the shareholders in IAC and Expedia should be paying for him to go on holiday when they already pay him very handsomely for his services. Were there other sort of trends you were able to pick out among the kinds of companies or the kinds of owners or kind of, sorry, other kinds of CEOs um, who are most likely to have these benefits? Yes. So what we found was that 
companies where the founder or the family still exerts a high degree of control abuse this perk more than others. So uh, you have Stephen Wynn of Wynn Resorts. You have John Tyson of Tyson Foods. You have uh, Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook. Um, And so that was the sort of most obvious trend. And when we spoke to corporate governance experts, they said, look, this isn't a huge amount of money in the grand scheme of things. You know, in terms of corporate overspending and excess, this is sort of a, a drop in the ocean. But the sorts of companies that do this have other problems. If you take Stephen Wynn, he spent most of last year in a proxy fight with his ex-wife trying to get her off the board. So, you know, it's seen as a red flag, if you like, for for deeper problems at the company. I guess you could see a couple of problems here too. I mean, one is sort of simply the message that it sends, right? In other words, you know, it, it doesn't look good. It doesn't feel right. There's a lot of skepticism about the gilded age we're in, you know, income inequality, things like that. And I guess another one would just be that it seems really quite unnecessary, right? It seems almost, I don't want to say deceptive or dishonest, but it seems like the better move here would just be to compensate that person more in cash or salaries if it's appropriate. Then that person can just rent the ship, rent the airplane or the corporate jet or the fleet or whatever by themselves, right? Why don't they just do that? It's also much cheaper to pay them more in a bonus or in their salary than it is to let them use the corporate jet for a personal trip because they lose tax allowances. So uh, in, in, in our uh, analysis, we found that Comcast, I think, had spent about $1.2 million, say, in 2014, letting its execs take the, the, the plane on, on their holidays and so on. But it lost out on a corporate tax deduction of $3.75 million because uh, there's various uh, deductions that you get for running a, a, a corporate aircraft that you don't get to access if you're letting the executives take it on personal flights. What do shareholders say in response to information like this? Don't they complain about it? Why don't they say, hey, if you've got enough money to be sending our CEO out on private vacations, right? Why don't you return the money back to shareholders instead? uh, And we'll find a good way to spend it because you're clearly out of ideas. I think they don't like it for the reason that it makes them suspicious about uh, the power of the chief executive versus the board. If the board is a strong board that isn't kowtowing to the chief executive's wishes, then they will tell him or her, although there are no hers on this <laughs> list, that they can't have these perks, that they will, you know, that they will have most of their pay packet linked to performance measures so that when the company does well, they do well and they don't get these sort of benefits handed out on a platter. What do you think about that, Shannon, the fact that there are no hers on this list? Well, I mean, it's the S&P 500. What do you expect? <laughs> how, many, how many hers are there at the top of any of those companies? David Crow, this is a fascinating article recommended to everybody. Executive Perks, the Corporate Jet Files is what it's called. It's in the FT. David, thanks as always. Thanks for having me. And now let's get on with today's show. First up on the show, economist David Beckworth comes in to talk about NGDP targeting, and he also talks about his recent op-ed in the New York Times that blames the Fed for the severity of the 2008 recession. And then we're going to be joined by Nicole Bullock, who's going to tell us about a battle in the stock exchange market. And of course, stick around for our own long-form recommendations. Lots of fun stuff today. Don't go anywhere. Don't go anywhere. 
First up on today's show, I was in Washington, D.C. at the Mercatus Center, where economist David Beckworth is a fellow right now. And we discussed his advocacy for an idea called nominal GDP targeting. Really quickly, because this is a little bit wonky before we get into the segment, when we talk about GDP growth, we're usually talking about real GDP. So it's all the spending in the economy adjusted for inflation. David's idea is that the Federal Reserve should target nominal GDP targeting. That is all the spending in the economy unadjusted for inflation. It's a really interesting idea. He's one of a cadre of economists that have been advocating nominal GDP targeting for a while. We also discuss his recent op-ed in the New York Times that essentially blames the Federal Reserve for the severity of the recession of 2008 and 2009. It was a really intriguing argument. Here it is. David, thanks for talking to Alpha Chat. Well, thank you for having me. Two topics uh, that I wanted to talk to you about. Sure. Okay. Um, you uh, are part of a uh, cabal of economists, uh, that's the right word, that, that refers to themselves as market monitorists, right? So I want to start by talking about uh, what I think has been uh, your signature idea for the last few years, uh, NGDP targeting. This is an idea uh, that you think uh, would benefit uh, the Fed if it embraced it. Uh, so why don't you start by telling us what NGDP targeting is and why you think it would be better than what the Fed does now. Okay. Nominal GDP targeting is simply having the Fed target the total amount of spending in the economy in current terms. It would literally go out there, measure total dollar expenditures, and aim to keep that on a stable growth path. Um, Historically, during the Great Moderation, it was about 5%, so that would have been maybe ideal um, but keep keep total spending stable, and effectively what it's, it's doing is you're stabilizing demand. You're keeping demand stable. And the reason we think that's useful is at the end of the day, that's basically the one thing the Fed has influence on over the long run is, is nominal demand or, or dollar de- spending. Um, if you look at inflation targeting, for example, it gets a little trickier because inflation targeting, when the Fed does that, it has to divine why is inflation moving. Is inflation going up or down because of real shocks to the economy like oil or productivity gains? In cases like that, you don't want to respond because you can make things distortionary. So, for example, um, if oil prices suddenly go up, there's a sudden reduction in the supply of oil. Um, that would be a drag on the economy for starters. It would probably slow growth down if we suddenly had a big war, oil disappeared. Inflation would go up. And do we want the Fed now to tighten policy on top of that? And inflation targeting, unless you know in real time what caused that, it's hard to know what to do. Um, For example, the Eurozone 2011, they tightened interest rates when inflation was going up. And in retrospect, in my view, it looks like it was more of a commodity price surge. So it's easy to make mistakes with inflation targeting. Now, in theory, it's, it's flexible inflation targeting. So in theory, they should be able to, you know, over the medium term, you know, kind of work these things out. But in practice, I think it's it's much more difficult. Um, and so nominal GDP targeting, you just focus on demand, you ignore supply shocks, you let the market kind of sort it out, and you just keep spending stable. So when, when people talk about the Fed's uh, dual mandate, right, it is uh, stable inflation, which the Fed itself has characterized mm-hmm. as 2% over the medium term, uh, and then it has this other mandate, which is unemployment. How would NGDP targeting uh, – help uh, sort of balance the Fed's uh, approach to both goals as opposed to just inflation? Well, over the long run, there's little it can do in terms of real GDP. But in the short run, it does have a huge role to play in stabilizing the business cycle. And that's that's the full employment part is try to minimize the ups and downs in the business cycle. And the way that the Fed does that, the way fiscal policy does it, is by affecting demand. 
I mean, you think of you know Econ 101, that aggregate demand curve. You're shifting that curve, trying to keep it at full employment. And what this is saying is, look, cut to the chase. If you look at inflation, you're looking at a symptom of a change in demand. So this is saying, look, keep your eye on the price. Keep it on aggregate demand. Keep it at the point which would keep the economy at full employment. So you'd have to know what level of, of aggregate demand is appropriate. But if, if the Fed was focused on that, we believe it would both keep us at full employment and give us a stable inflation rate. Uh, how do we know that the Fed would be able to keep the economy on that path? Because one of the big debates now is whether or not central banks are, and the use of the phrase is, quote unquote, out of ammo, right? right. Maybe they can't do anymore. Maybe they've, they've reached the limits of what they can do. How would introducing a, a regime of nominal GDP targeting uh, give them new tools to actually affect what's happening in the economy? Because there's so much skepticism about that now. And that's understandable, given the performance the past seven years or so. Um, first thing is, it would be a level target. So a level target, it says you make up for past mistakes. So the Fed would be would come out and say, we are going to credibly commit to do whatever it takes to have rapid catch-up growth, which might mean temporarily higher inflation. Um, likewise, if there's a boom, it would have to come down as well. But level targeting by itself adds more credibility because it says, look, we're, we'll do whatever is possible. And and I believe what would happen is that the market itself would do some of the heavy lifting. If they knew the Fed's going to do whatever it takes, the velocity of money would pick up. Um, but if you want more credibility, and, and I think there's reasonable reasons to be questioning just the Fed doing it itself, I'm not opposed to you know having a fiscal backstop to it. So I've argued recently that um, you know maybe having the Treasury provide a backstop to the target, the the Fed would still be the the executioner, the one who would would manage it. But the the Treasury saying, look, we'll backstop a big automatic stabilizer if necessary to reach it. I think that that'd be fine too. What what, what would that look like? Because to this point, the Fed to reinforce its targets has used a kind of a combination of different things. It used something called forward guidance for a little mm -hmm. while, where it essentially pledged not to raise rates until some targets were, uh, were met or some limits were breached, right? So the Fed at one point said, if unemployment goes below a certain amount, we might consider raising rates, or if inflation goes above a certain amount, we might consider raising rates, but not until one of those two things mm -hmm. uh, has happened. It then tried quantitative easing, buying bonds, essentially, buying treasuries mm -hmm. and buying uh, agency MBS, right, and taking those out of the system uh, and giving the banks reserves instead uh, as a means of influencing lending decisions with the banks. It seems now uh, that the Fed might have to contemplate negative rates, as some European banks have uh, and as the Japanese uh, central bank has. And so I guess my question is, why uh, would a treasury backstop be better and how would it actually work? Well, a treasury backstop would be better in the sense that it, it would it has the capacity to literally you know create money. It would deposit bonds at the Fed. The Fed would credit the treasury with money. The treasury takes that money and sends the checks directly to households. Right to our houses. Right to your houses. Right. Sign me up now. But now, what I would stress, though, is that this would, you know, I would want this done in a, in a kind of rules-based mechanism, not kind of like unemployment insurance. It's not something Congress would have to sign into law every time it's needed. It would be an automatic mechanism. And if that's the case, if you knew that, if everyone knew that no matter what happens, there's going to be a check, the worst-case scenario sent to you, there'd be less need to panic in the first place. Um, and I, 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 let me step back, though, but just having a level target itself, let me stress how powerful that can be. 
Um, I, you know, my view is, yeah, we did QE, we did, we did forward guidance, but I think those things were ultimately neutered or, or muzzled by the fact that the Fed only wants low inflation. Now, this is just my own view here, but I, I think if the Fed was, was more, would tolerate higher inflation, those could have had more of an impact. Um, so part of it is the Fed committing, being forceful, and maybe the political support is not there for it. But I, I do think, you know, if we get a consensus behind a target like nominal GDP level targeting, it could make a big difference. Okay, so essentially what would happen is at the end of each year, if total spending in the economy hasn't hit that level path that you're targeting, yep. right, then the Treasury would essentially send money to our houses in the hopes that we would bring spending back up to that target. Right. I guess my question is, since you have to keep it on that path, uh, you have to bolster uh, the economy when there's a shortfall, but you'd also have to rein it in when it goes too quickly. Absolutely. Uh, how would that work? Well, in that case, um, if the Fed, the Fed would be the first one again to try to bring it down. And I think the Fed probably could bring it down. But in the absence of the Fed being able to rein in spending that was growing too fast, um, the Treasury would deposit bonds again at the Fed, and then the Fed would use those bonds. It would sell them, pull the money out. That already is implicitly happening. If you think think of the Fed, what if it did go insolvent? What if it had more liabilities, more monetary base out there than it had you know, assets? So let's say, you know, crazy scenario, those mortgage-backed securities, they lost value, and suddenly there's $4 trillion of monetary base, bank reserves, but there's not enough assets to pull it back in. What would happen? Well, the Treasury right now would have to bail it out. And so this is really isn't that much different than what already kind of implicitly is is in the system. This just makes it explicit. It ties it to a target and commits the Treasury outright to doing something it probably would do anyways. Sure. And I, I should probably uh, add for our listeners, I think that the toughest part of this then uh, would be the transition, the political oh, transition to a absolutely. new regime. I mean, that's what's holding things up. And that's that's what I'm working on is trying to you know, pitch <laughs> this idea um, to, to you know to to Republicans, to Democrats, try to get them on board with the idea that if we can stabilize demand, it would solve problems for both sides. If if we stabilize demand, it'd be less unemployment, a lot cyclical based unemployment, less human suffering, which the left would love and the right would love that too. Um, but we, we could also do it in a very rule-based, predictable manner. I mean, Fed policy over the past seven years has been incredibly ad hoc, make it up as we go along. If we could make this much more systematic yet forceful, um, I think the world would be a better place for many people. Okay. Second topic now. Okay. You uh, and your occasional uh, collaborator, uh, Ramesh Panuru, uh, wrote a, a, an op-ed for the New York Times uh, in which you argued that the Fed is primarily responsible for the recession of 2008 and 2009 becoming uh, as deep as it was, that it could have done something to prevent that. Take us through your argument, because this was uh, a heavily debated uh, and contentious uh, article. I think I've never received so much blowback in my life from something I've written, Um, but expected, expected, so I'm not surprised. What we're saying is that, first, there were already problems in the economy. We acknowledge that there was housing problems, there was debt, there was already problems on Wall Street early as 2007. Um, but during this period, none of these things actually had led to a decline in overall like spending, um, total employment. In, let me phrase it. Employment outside of construction and housing-related industries had continued to grow until early 2008. The unemployment rate doesn't begin to turn until 2008. So the economy was handling these in a decent manner. But something happens in 2008 that turns what we think was an ordinary recession into a far worse one. So um, about that time, April, from about April 
to about the summertime, if you look at Fed fund future rates the year ahead, they start going up. In fact, they get about 3.5%, which means you know, during the first part of the year, the market was expecting the Fed to raise interest rates to 3.5%. So this is in 2008, and they're, they're thinking, oh my gosh, you know, they're going to raise rates. That was the Fed talking it up. Um, and then by the, the end of, of the year, up, up until uh, its, member, its October meeting when it lowered uh, rates below 2%, it was still talking up interest rate hikes. And, and the reason being is because it was concerned about inflation. We talked earlier, I mentioned earlier the problems with inflation. Well, the Fed had made that same mistake. It was worried that inflation was getting ahead and it didn't want to act. So we think that the economy was already weak. There's going to be a recession. But the Fed put that final noose around the neck that turned it into something far worse. If someone has pneumonia, they're walking to the hospital, they're, they're going to be sick, they're going to be, be really bad, but they hit by a car, it's going to be even harder for them to heal to get out of it because this, this big you know, uh, shock hits them. And, and that is kind of the analogy I have for the Fed. Sure. So I guess given the uh, collapse in housing, given how uh, the recovery was so difficult and sluggish, do you think that even in just that small period of time, the Fed could have done enough to have avoided uh, the worst parts of that recession? In other words, how do we know that things were just so out of whack, essentially, that we were destined for this kind of uh, a downturn and recovery anyways? Well, we could have been. I, I can't be certain. But I, I do think, again, if you look at what had happened up until early 2008, it was a manageable recession. If you look at in most indicators, even the problems on Wall Street. So, you know, um, the, the, the TED spread when we Bear Stearns collapsed in early 2008, even after that point, that spread, but, but, but I think it was May or June, is starting to come down. So despite everything that had happened, we still had not seen a collapse in, in, in nominal income, in employment. And, you know, I, Based on that, I guess I'm arguing that something something catalyzed the worst part. Look, there was latent potential for this. What what happened? Why was it triggered? And I guess the argument is the Fed did it. So debt makes us more vulnerable. There's no doubt about that. Leverage. I mean, you're, if you're over leveraged in your in your house, your mortgage, you're more vulnerable to a shock. Your income drops a little bit, you're screwed. I mean, so it, so on one hand, yeah, it, it took it took two things to two two parts to tango here. It took a vulnerable economy, and then it took a Fed to make this happen. Sure. So I, I think one of the responses you've gotten was that if you look at what the Fed was actually doing in 2008 and early mm-hmm. 2009, it was loosening policy, right? To which I think your retort had something to do with the natural rate of interest. Tell us what that is and then tell us how this feeds into your story that the Fed was actually tightening as opposed to loosening policy. Okay. So when the Fed was signaling it's going to raise rates in 2008, we were already in a recession. It was already a week, like I've acknowledged, which meant that market clearing rate or the natural interest rate was falling. It was already going down. And so the market clearing rate, the rate at which the Fed would have to bring down right. its own rate. Thank you. Okay. Yes. It's, where would the Fed need to lower the rate in order to make the economy healthy again? That rate was falling fast. And the Fed was signaling it's going to raise rates. So you know, people have often critiqued, well, 2% backwards, what's the big deal? Two to zero. And I would argue, no, you know, I think it was June, May or June 2008, Fed fund futures signaled a year ahead the market thought the Fed fund rate would be 3.5%. Well, that market clearing rate was dropping probably really, really low, maybe even below zero at that point. And so the gap was getting really, really big. So the gap was getting big. 
And then on top of that, we already are a, a vulnerable economy, all this debt. So we're, we're, we're susceptible, and the Fed is tightening by doing nothing. Um, and that's, I guess that's the argument. Now, by the time two, late 2008, 2009 comes around, I think one could argue, you know, the, the horse is out of the barn already. And, uh, it, you know, it had to be really radical. I mean, you know, my nominal GDP level targeting, which I acknowledge politically probably there wasn't much support there for something like that or, or helicopter drops. I mean, those things just probably weren't on the table by that point. But that's what would have been needed. Are you more optimistic now? Because it seems like uh, the intellectual space for what could politically be at least considered by policymakers uh, has expanded quite a lot since then. Uh, my colleague Martin Wolf just had an article on the same day that you wrote your post about uh, NGDP targeting saying helicopter drops might be here sooner than we think. Uh, so I, I guess I'm just curious to get your general take on the evolution of that conversation and whether or not you're hopeful now that the kind of regime change you've been calling for might be something that policymakers seriously consider soon. Well, I think it's apparent that central banks are groping in the dark to kind of figure it out as they go along. So we've seen them, a number of them move to negative interest rates, um, which indicates, well, what we've tried so far, QE hasn't done it. Let's try negative rates. And I think negative rates will ultimately be, um, will not fulfill what they're trying to do as well because we have physical cash, it's just not going to work. They're not going to get rates low enough to actually reach that market clearing level. So I think as they continue to grope in the dark looking for the solution, I, I, I'm hopeful the one thing that will dawn on them is, well, let's do level targeting um, and hopefully you know, nominal GDP level targeting and you know, maybe even my idea of having that backed by a treasury backstop. Let, let me just stress that my proposal, let me be very clear, it's, it's nominal GDP level targeting and that treasury backstop adds the credibility to make it really, I think, effective. And if that's the case, if I'm right, it's unlikely it would ever be used. So it would be the threat of a helicopter drop that would really make this effective. And so people who are concerned about, oh, you're going to you know, grow the debt level, debt to GDP will soar. I, I don't think it will. I think, you know, when does debt to GDP often grow? During recessions. And I think this would avoid that in the first place. You know, with talk of helicopter drops and central banks being out of ammo, do you find it weird that the language around central banking has become so militarized? <laughs> Well, they may feel like they're in a war. I mean, you know, they're, they're fighting the, the economic war, but then they're being attacked by Congress. And, and right. They're, they've bunkered in. That's, that's for sure. That, the language I, is there. I, I'm picturing a bunch of dorks and machine guns right now. <laughs> that's scary. <laughs> David Beckworth, uh, thanks for talking to us. Thank you. Uh, before you go, David, what is your long-form recommendation for our listeners? Foolproof by Greg Epp. Great read. Um, it helps us appreciate how being safe can actually lead to the very disasters we've talked about. And next up on the show, we are joined by the FT's Nicole Bullock, who has a big piece this week in the Financial Times, a big read about a war brewing in the U.S. stock market. Nicole, this is, I believe, your debut on Alpha Chat. Is that right? That's right. You were on maternity leave uh, when we started, so this is not my fault. <laughs> That's right. It's my fault. Okay. <laughs> it's the baby's uh, fault. <laughs> it is the baby's fault. Uh, okay. Big story uh, about IEX, a trading venue that wants to become a U.S. stock exchange. That's right. Um, so here's where I want to start, because I think most people are familiar with NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange. Why don't you just start by telling us what IEX is and what it does? So uh, I'll preface this by saying this is for the 
the people who have not read Flash Boys. Of course. Which is Michael Lewis's latest book, uh, which has catapulted IX uh, to, to fame. But uh, if you sidestep that, uh, IEX is um, one of many um, alternative trading venues in the, in the U.S. market. So they um, you know, operate kind of alongside the exchanges. And um, right now it's teeny tiny. It has, um, I think, less than 2% share of the market. But kind of riding on this fame from Flash Boys, they've been able to raise some money and um, you know, get to the point where they've put forth this application to to be an exchange. Um, part of their mission, and one of the reasons why they were, you know, in the sights of um, of Michael Lewis, is that uh, they believe that the modern market structure is unfair. That it's very easy for high speed traders to kind of game the market by uh, finding out about trades uh, that other investors are intending to make and kind of racing ahead of them and. And uh, and make and profiting from them before before uh, the trade gets done. So they started out as chronicled in the book to quote unquote level that playing field by introducing a 350 microsecond delay. A that, delay on what specifically? What does that mean? So that's a delay on uh, trades entering the IX system and leaving it. And just to give you some perspective that of you know where we're at in terms of the technology and the speed in the markets now, that is one one thousandth of the time it takes to blink your eye. So, <laughs> but that's this the speed is bump. <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. And and not only is that the speed bump, that's the speed bump that people are against. So this is kind of the level that we're at um, these days in the markets. And forget about you know the movie Wall Street. You call on the phone and haggle over the price. You know that that has kind of gone the way of the buggy whip. It is, you know, there, there, there are still voice brokers that still does happen, especially around an IPO, you know, when an IPO trades for the first time and there are still people on the NICE floor who are doing that sort of thing. But it is predominantly in the markets, this kind of high speed electronic world now. So uh, IEX believes that that has kind of stacked the deck against um, long-term investors. And now they're at the point where they're kind of infiltrating the market itself, if, if you know, if they get the green light from the SEC to become an exchange, they would have equal footing as NICE, NASDAQ, BATS, and you know the other um, exchanges in the market. So, today. It certainly seems like since the publication of Flash Boys, like this issue has risen in prominence quite a lot. But even before then, it was clear that the market structure in the U.S. was a little bit wacky. In other words, you have dark pools, you now have high-frequency traders, you have multiple exchanges. I guess I'm, I'm wondering how the incumbents uh, are reacting to this. Uh, or rather, I know how they're reacting to this because I read your story. But why don't you tell our listeners uh, how the New York Stock Exchange and how NASDAQ are reacting to the possibility that they're going to have a new entrant uh, in their market? Well, it's it's very interesting because you have this this company coming in IEX, which doesn't have a lot of market share. And for example, when Bats, who's now the third main operator, when they became an exchange, they had uh, I think something like ten percent market share. So they're coming in with with not a lot, which raises a lot of eyebrows as to you know why do people care so much? Why is this IEX such a threat? Part of it seems to be that everything that IEX has said publicly has created a bit of bad blood. You know, they've basically right. come out and said that the establishment is is a big problem. Yeah, it seems so. So I think almost. there is an element of that, although people don't really want to admit that. I do think there is an element of that. You know, there's been a lot of trash talking, and now you know we're going to have our say. So you have on one side, you know, IEX as this kind of upstart disruptor, and um, the people who back them 
there's lots of long-term investors who have voiced support through through the, the formal comment process that the SEC runs in this kind of um, situation, some academics, some congressmen, that sort of thing. And then on the other side, you have this other group that is opposed. You have NICE, NASDAQ, BATS, um, the market maker Citadel. It's also a hedge fund. And then there have been a couple of, con- I think there are two congressmen who also have warned against IEX. So if you if you put aside all the rhetoric there are some some other beefs that 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 IEX's detractors have, and most of it has to do with kind of the letter of the rules uh, governing the market. So these are things that the SEC put into effect, which now they're going to have to kind of interpret in in the minutia. Well, what's which, an example of one of those? So uh, one of them is that the way that 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 one of the regulations is written is it says that the quotes in the market have to be automatic. And immediate that you can't in, basically, and I'm interpreting now. You know, you, ha- you can't impose deliberate delays. So uh, Nasdaq and NYSE and, and, and Citadel have kind of seized upon that and said that right there means that the rules just say, "Sorry, IEX, this isn't going to work." And the reason that the rules say that it all has to do with the fact that once you become an official exchange, what goes on in your market feeds into what's considered the official market prices. So when you trade your trade has to go to the place that offers the best price. So all of this is is meant to ensure that investors get the best price, but your quote gets filtered into that calculation. And what they're saying is, if you have a delay, it's going to muck up this whole thing, and we're not going to know what, really where the market is. It's going to become, it's going to get muddy. Uh, so that's one of their beefs against them. Another one was about IEX's router. So this is this is the part of IEX that would send trades that it can't fill in-house to other markets. So let's say I'm a big investor and I have 200 million shares of Apple that I want to sell. And I send them to IEX and IEX can only fill half of that order. It will fill half because it has resting orders on its, on its exchange. Right. It will fill those and then it sends what it can't fill out to other people, so that order can to get to the filled. other exchanges. To the other exchanges, and or and, another market maker. So that goes through the router. Now the router had been not subject to the speed bump, and this was a real kind of lightning rod of the criticism of of the application that IX had put forth, and they have uh, since changed that. So they've they've adjusted that a bit to um, adhere to some of the complaints that they've had, and that too has kind of filtered into this whole kind of market clash that's going on because IEX has said from the beginning, we're adamant, we're not going to change anything in our market structure that would potentially affect investors' rights. And now they've made this change. So some people are saying, oh, IEX blinked. IEX says, no, we didn't blink. This, The changes that we've made, we did it in a way that still we think protects investors' rights. So it remains to be seen if the SEC, who is in the unenviable position of policing all of this, you know, what they're actually going to to think, you know, they're in probably, you know, one of the toughest spots because the SEC. Uh, the SEC, yes, because you know they've come under so much pressure in the last ten years or so, in and around the crisis, you know, the the financial crisis, you know, they all of the criticism that they received around two thousand eight that you know they missed the whole toxic mortgage bond mess, and we're in an election year, and you know these guys, IEX, have been really put put up at least. In Flash Boys and kind of the popular mindset, people in the market disagree with this, of course, that these are the good guys trying to level the playing field. So if the SEC comes out and weighs against them, I think it's politically very difficult for them. They have to have a very good reason to to say no. To say no. And 
it comes down to kind of interpreting the finer points of these rules. IEX says that what the exchanges say is not right. There's precedent for what we do in some of the ways that that the exchanges manage manage speed. Uh, it's it's like really wonky and complicated. <laughs> you probably don't want to go into it, but basically they say they have de facto speed bumps of their own. The exchanges disagree. It's just a massive he said, she said, and the SEC will have to make the tough decisions. And one of the things you point out is, you know, just how prevalent, right, high frequency trading has become. It's such it's a, you know, it's essentially half of, of trading volume at this point, right? And and then of course when we're talking about that, you know, that ridiculously what seems ridiculously short speed bump, essentially, you know, when you think about it in real terms, you know, how much of a difference would that make? Well, IEX believes that, you know, kind of incomprehensible time lapse to us, to human beings, is actually enough to level the playing field. That's what they and their technologists and big brains mm -hmm. have decided and figured out and tested is enough to to achieve their their mission, right? Now, what happens when they actually become an exchange is they are directed more volume because if they have the best price at the time, then, you know, the, the trade goes to them. So, you know, they will get more, they will get more volume. It sort of remains to be seen beyond that, you know, how, how this is going to play out if they've upset, you know, enough market makers that that could, you know, have an impact uh, one of the other complaints that we wrote about in the story is some people say they're expensive and they're trying to justify a higher price. You know, on the other hand, maybe long-term investors love them and they are a real threat and that's what the uh, incumbents in the market are really worried about. And, you know, at the same time, you know, another kind of problem for, for the SEC is that, you know, they don't want to mess up. They don't want to introduce something to the market that then, you know, what if the critics are right? And it does mess up. The, the pricing, you know, that's kind of on on them that they you didn't can't undo it, know really. that that was going to happen. Well, I guess you know that then you clean up the mess, but in the end, you know, the SEC is is tasked with you know that's its job. It, it that's what this whole thing is about is they have to make you know kind of weigh these two sides and and decide you know what's the best thing for for investors. One last question, and it's a tough one, I think. So it seems like the threat that IEX poses to the uh, establishment uh, is twofold, right? So first, there's the conventional uh, there's a conventional threat of just having another player in the market. That's right. right. That's fairly easy to understand, right? It means that you know the, the the share of the market that's controlled by everyone else might be eroded a little bit. It might be diluted, but there's a more kind of subtle threat. It seems to me, which is that. There's a kind of established set of norms for how business works, right? As there is with any complex and inter, you know, interconnected series of institutional structures, right? So take the example of how the exchanges make money by allowing high frequency traders to connect to their to connect to them and by, you know, the co-location thing and they can get the data earlier than everyone else, that kind of thing, right? That's a, a way of making money. IEX becoming an exchange is a kind of explicit criticism of that way of doing things. And I guess my question is whether or not this could be like the first step in changing the way things are done, or if that would require something way bigger, something way more fundamental than just a brand new player who's not that big yet. It might not have, it might be symbolically interesting, but won't have necessarily a huge impact on the market, at least not right away. Well, I think the answer is is yes. You know, I, yes, I do think uh, that could be a, f a first step. 
And I would say the stakes are even higher because, you know, potentially it's a read on a system that the SEC created, right? So they're they're passing judgment on potentially their own system. And thirdly, I would say that this idea has already come up in that some of the exchanges, I think um, uh, Jeff Sprecher, the the head of ICE, which owns NICE, has said, if you want to let IEX through, you know, don't give them a quote unquote uh, exemption from the rules. Let's let's uh, review the whole system. Now, other people would say that's the greatest stall tactic in creation to not have uh, an approval for IEX. But he still said it. You know, he's still out there saying big industry heavyweight saying, let's just, you know, if the problem is we need to slow down, then we need to slow down and let's let's all get together and and talk about that. The problem with that is these things tend to take, you know, an act of God to to get done. You know, that's a very, very long involved process, like the process that got us to where we are now. So um, if the first step in that is IEX becoming an exchange or just the fact that IEX wanted to become an exchange starting this conversation, it is, I think, the beginning of, of quite a long process. Fantastic. Uh, thanks so much, Nicole. The article is U.S. Exchanges, The Speed Bump Battle. It's in the Financial Times. Everybody needs to go read it. Nicole, before you go, however, we want to know what your long-form recommendation is for our listeners. In the interest of full disclosure, I will say the author is a friend of mine, but uh, it would be um, The 100-Year Walk by Don McKean. So this is um, a fellow journalist who uh, discovered her grandfather's diaries which chronicled uh, his escape from the Armenian genocide. And she decided upon reading them and being moved by them and, and you know, ha- having the history of, of these stories in her family, she decided to go back and re- retrace his steps. So she actually went through Turkey and Syria, and this is a couple of years ago before some of the political situations in that region had um, really accelerated to the point that they are today. So a lot of these places would be impossible to go to now. And uh, it's just a very moving and courageous story. Thanks so much. And that's all the time we have for today's show. Shannon, we haven't done our long-form recommendations yet. What's yours? Um, I'm going to recommend the most recent sort of mini-series on the podcast, You Must Remember This, um, which is about Hollywood history. Uh, They're in the midst of doing a series on the Hollywood blacklist and sort of the history of trying to root out alleged communists in Hollywood. And uh, all sorts of interesting people figure into this, and it's just super interesting. Sounds fantastic. What about you, Cardiff? So in order to give my long-form recommendation, uh, I have to embarrass both of us. I think a lot of people Uh-oh. don't know that you and I are advice column aficionados of a kind. Absolutely. That's not, I don't know how, I don't know if that's shameful as much as it is guilty pleasure-ish. I'm pretty you know? proud of it. Yeah. I think I advice think so. columns are kind of the greatest thing ever. And the internet <laughs> has only made them better. Arguably. That's true. But I still think maybe the queen of advice columnists is Heather Haverleski. She's wonderful. And my recommendation is therefore the recent long-form podcast episode uh, with her, 
Longform Podcast being the name of the podcast, Longform. Uh, those guys are great interviewers, and she's a great columnist, and she speaks exactly as she writes. So it's really fantastic. Check it out. And we are just about done. Shannon, uh, why don't you get us started uh, with the closeout? Thanks so much for listening, everyone. We'd love to hear what you think of the show. You can give us a call, leave us a voice message at 917-551-5012, or you can email us at alphachat at ft.com. We're on Twitter. I'm at Shannon Pry, S-H-A-N-N-O-N-P-A-R-E-I-L, and Cardiff is at Cardiff Garcia. We would love to hear what you think of the show on iTunes. If you would go on there and leave a rating and review, that would really help us out and it'll help other listeners discover the show. We also put up show notes at ft.com slash alpha chat. My hope is that one day this podcast makes us all enough money that we can buy producer and editor Amy Keene her own private jet to fly her around wherever she wants. Thanks for everything, Amy, and thanks to our listeners. We'll see you here again next week for another episode of Alpha Chat. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.